If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Sharon. Well, I've... Uh, don't have any expertise in this area, but I've heard it said that the three most in, important things or the three most important rules in real estate are location, location, location. I, I have no clue if that's true, but it certainly sounds good. <laughs> well, when we, when we come to Scripture, when it, when it comes to Scripture, when we come to wanting to understand Scripture, to know what the meaning of a passage is all about— the, most in, the three most important things for us is context, context, context. Because if we want to under, rightly understand a passage of Scripture, we have to know where we are in the, in the, where we are in the, in the passage, where we are in the Bible. And I think that is especially true when we come to our passage this morning, to the love chapter. That's right, that's right. Well, as Sharon read 1 Corinthians 13, no doubt these are very familiar words for, for all of you. You're just probably not used to hearing them in church on a Sunday morning, right? Where, where are you generally used to hearing these words? At a wedding, that's right, at a wedding. This is a very popular passage here to have read at weddings. Perhaps you can remember that day, you close your eyes and you can remember hearing this passage read at your own wedding or perhaps you read this at someone else's wedding. Um, and that makes sense, right? In many ways, it's a, it's a beautiful passage and it perfectly fits an occasion like a wedding. But as we come to this passage in its context I think this morning we're going to see that it really has nothing to do with weddings at all. It's not even primarily about the relationship of a husband and a wife, although applications certainly can and should be made to our marriages. I will do so this morning. 
Um, but if you happen to be sitting in the church in Corinth when this letter was first read, you definitely would not have gone up to the pastor afterwards and said, well, would you read that part about love again? I really want to have that read at my wedding. Because these words coming from Paul, they wouldn't have made you feel all warm and fuzzy inside. But these words would have stung. Because this passage really is beautiful as it is. It's really a word of rebuke. It's a, it's a word of correction to the Corinthians who had a very wrong and superficial understanding of what it means to be spiritual. They had a, a wrong understanding of what it looked like to be a spiritual, a spiritual person. But that's what this passage is really all about. This passage here in, this, in these verses, Paul is showing us what it looks like to be a spirit-empowered person. Now, before we look at where the Corinthians went wrong, I want to ask you, what is it that you look to as proof of your own spirituality? What are the signs that you look to in your own life or in the lives of those around you to show that the Holy Spirit is present and active in your life? Perhaps for you, it's, it's having a lot of Bible and theological knowledge, right? It's being like the go-to guy in your friend group or the go-to gal in your friend group to, to answer all of the Bible-related questions. Or maybe you look to how much you do for the church. You think about how many teams am I serving on? How many events am I going to? Or how many events am I hosting? Those are what I look to to show are as signs of my spirituality, or perhaps maybe it's how aware or involved you are in, in social justice causes. And these are certainly all good things. These are things that, to be, that are to be encouraged. But none of these things is the thing for the Apostle Paul. None of these things are the thing that the Apostle Paul would point to to show what a spirit-empowered person looks like. If you were to ask Paul what the spirit-empowered person looked like, without hesitation, he would point to love. Yes. He would have asked, is this person characterized by love? Is this person's life riddled with and saturated by a deep and resounding love for God and love for others? Because that, more than anything else, for the Apostle Paul and for Scripture is the greatest display of the Spirit's presence in our life. It's our love for one another. And that's what this passage is all about. And in this passage here, Paul gives us three reasons why our truest spirituality, why what it means to be a spiritual person is found in the superiority of love. Here in these verses, he gives us three reasons why we should prize and pursue love as the most excellent way. And the first reason is that love is essential. Paul be begins his defense of love with words that really would have shocked the Corinthians to their core. Look with me at verse 1. Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Right out of the gate, Paul goes after the Corinthians' wrong assumption that their spirituality was tied to their use of the spiritual gifts, especially what we might call the more miraculous or the more sign gifts. You see, they thought that it was their, their possession of these higher gifts that, that was a sign that they were truly spiritual. But here, Paul wants them to see that without love, 
even the most extraordinary use of their gifts is rendered meaningless. It is absolutely empty. And so here in verse 1, he goes after their favorite. As I mentioned here, for the Corinthians, the gift of tongues or the gift of unlearned languages was, was the gift. And those who had this gift prided themselves on being the most spiritual. And here Paul says that, that even if he possessed this gift in such a large measure, that not only could he, he speak in, in the tongues of men, these unlearned languages that he didn't know, but even if he possessed it in such a large amount that he could speak in the tongues of angels, if he could do all of that, but if he didn't have love, then he would be a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. He would just be making empty, annoying, meaningless sounds. I mean, really, he might as well have just been dragging his nails across the chalkboard because that's about as useful as it was. But he doesn't just stop with this example of the gift of tongues, but as he continues here in verse 2, he actually calls out all of the more miraculous or sign gifts that those in Corinth might have looked to as signs of their spiritual superiority to show that without love, they are all likewise meaningless. Look with me at verse 2. He says, If I have prophetic powers, and if I understand all mysteries, and have all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Possessing the gifts of prophecy, wisdom, knowledge, and faith. In fact, if he had all wisdom, all understanding, all knowledge and faith, so much so that he could say to this mountain, move, and this mountain would be moved, if he didn't have love, it was nothing. If he didn't use these, these gifts out of love for his brothers and sisters in the church, then he was nothing. Paul would not have been impressed with their use of spiritual gifts. He was not impressed with their spiritual gifts. For those who thought they were mature, Paul had one question for them. Do you have love? Show me the love. That is what Paul wanted to know. Because far from being a sign of their spiritual maturity, the fact that they were using these gifts without love was a sign of completely the opposite. It was a sign of their spiritual immaturity. And in verse 3, he, he takes the, this line of reasoning to, to its, he kind of kicks it up a notch as he says, if he even did the most sacrificial of things, if he gave away everything that he had, if he walked himself to the stake to be martyred for the faith, if he gave his body up to be burned, if he did those things, things that the world, things that other people in the church would look to and say, man, that person's spiritual. Man, this person must really be filled with the Spirit. I mean, look at what they're doing. They are being martyred for their faith. They're, they're giving away everything they have. Surely this person is a spiritual person. And Paul would say, even if they did that without love, they would be nothing in the sight of God. You see, for Paul, there's actually no spiritual profit to our use of the gifts or anything that we do apart from love. In the divine mathematics here, gifts or anything minus love equals nothing because love is absolutely essential. So this morning, I just want to ask you, is, is love for others on your radar for what it means to be a spirit-empowered person? Is it an essential ingredient? It is, is it the essential ingredient in your view of what it means to be spiritual? 
because it is for the Apostle Paul. If love doesn't characterize all of our lives, especially our use of whatever gifts God in his grace has given to us, then we're nothing. In that way, I think this verse can be a helpful corrective for us. I think it can can cause us to question, to, to ask our motives. Am I using this gift that God has given me out of a sincere desire of love for my brothers and sisters? Am I using this gift out of love and to serve and to build up God's people? Or am I using this gift to make much of myself? I think that's a helpful corrective for us. But as I was thinking about this passage, there's a very encouraging truth for us here in these first three verses too. Because in these verses, what Paul does is he turns our paradigm for what spirituality looks like on its head. He completely flips upside down our paradigm for what it looks like to be spiritual. He's telling us here that true spirituality isn't found in the most impressive displays of our gifts or in things that would cause others to look at us as if we were truly spiritual people. That's not what causes us to be spiritual. That's not what makes us spiritual. What Paul is telling us here, that anything and everything that we do out of love has supreme spiritual value. These are signs in each of our lives that we are being empowered by the Holy Spirit. They are signs for us that the Holy Spirit is active in our lives. Given my season of life, I was just mindful of how transforming I think this mindset can be, um, just particularly for all you moms out there, and especially, I think, for the moms of little ones. In our culture that prizes perfection and put-togetherness, I know that it is just so easy to get discouraged when you're comparing yourselves to other people, when you're looking at these other moms' Instagrams or Snapchats or Facebook pages, and it can just be so easy to get discouraged of, oh, I'm not spiritual like them at all. I don't do all these great things, and I don't make all these great posts. But here, this passage is helping us to see that the primary thing that matters in our life is love. So just for you parents out there, I would just encourage you, don't be tempted to discount the things that you do, especially for your kids Because when done in love, those are profound displays of your spirituality. I think just last week, Donna was sick, and I took a day off to stay home to take care of the kids so that she could get some rest. And I think I am more convinced now than ever before that there is not a more spiritual thing in the world than caring for little children. (laughs) There is not a more spiritual thing in the world than that. But this truth, it's not just for moms, right? It's for all of us in here. Because everything we do, even the quote-unquote smallest acts of service that we do, when they are done out of love, are supreme displays. They are supreme examples of our being filled with the Holy Spirit, of our spirituality. You just think about taking a meal to someone or giving someone a ride, serving on a setup and teardown team or serving in children's ministry, helping to prepare our family lunch this morning. And the list could certainly go on. And all of these things, when they're done in love, they're profound displays that the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart. So let's hear Paul's words here and let love be the ruler by which we measure our spirituality. Because it's not in the big and the flashy things, but it's in love that we see. So that's the first reason why our truest spirituality is found in the superiority of love. And that's because love is essential. 
But Paul continues, and we see that the second reason is that love is others-focused. In these verses, Paul doesn't so much as define love as he does describe it for us, helping us to see what does this love look like in real life. You almost imagine him scratching their head. Paul, if love is so important, right? If I do all of these great things, but I don't have love, they're meaningless. Well, what in the world is love then? And here Paul answers it in these verses as he, he paints this picture of what love looks like in real life. And here we see that love is, is more than just a feeling, although it's certainly not less than that. But love is active. Love does. Love, love prioritizes the good of others over and against ourselves. Just, just, hear how Paul, just hear how Paul begins his description of God's love here in verses 4 and 5. Paul says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. And it is not irritable or resentful. And he goes on and on through verse 7. And as we read a list like this, you might wonder, where in the world did all of these descriptions come from? Like, like why does Paul choose these characteristics of, of all the things that we could possibly say about love? Why does Paul choose this list of 15 things to say, this is what love is, or this is what love isn't? Like, why, why do he choose those, right? Well, it turns out that in large part, this list simply comes from the things that Paul in this letter has already had to correct the Corinthians for. That's why I said earlier, when, when we hear these words, when the Corinthians heard these words, they would, have, they would have stung, they would have hurt. Because in these verses, Paul is essentially saying, do you know what love is? Love is not you. Love is not you guys. In fact, love is the opposite of how you guys are acting. That's what they would have heard. I mean, just look at the first example here. The first love does not. It says that love does not envy. And here, Paul is going all the way back to the first chapter of this book where Paul has to correct the Corinthians for the, the rivalry and the competition over their teachers. I mean, you can remember it was some months or maybe a few weeks ago for us now, but where some were saying, I follow Paul, and others were saying, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas. And then you had the really spiritual ones who says, well, I follow Jesus. You know, and there were this, these, these rivalries. And here, Paul, right out of the gate, says... He's correcting them and he says, love doesn't envy. It doesn't get into competitions with others. Or consider love is not arrogant. Your translation might say proud here. And this just seems to be the chief sin of the Corinthians. At least five times already in this letter, he's had to, to call them out for being arrogant, for being puffed up, really in all areas of their life. There wasn't a thing that wasn't going on in their midst that wasn't causing them to be arrogant or to be proud. And this certainly seems to capture their heart behind their use of the gifts. They were using them arrogantly. They were using them to draw attention to themselves, to make much of themselves rather than using them for the common good, which as we saw in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, is the very reason that God has given them to us. These gifts are not for our own gain, but they're for the building up, they're for the gain of the church. We could certainly go through each of these, but we want to eat lunch at some point. You know, I think, think we get the point here. In these verses, in this description of love, Paul is, is calling the Corinthians to connect their spirituality with love, because love is inherently others-focused. 
It's the true test of our spirituality. Is are we putting others ahead of ourselves? So how are you doing here? These are fun verses to read or hear read at a wedding, right? But how are we doing? Would you say that these verses describe your, what your love looks like? This is really a, a very important heart question for all of us to think about and to consider because Jesus himself said that the world would know that we are his disciples by our love, by our love for one another. So this is essential, right? This is essential for all of us that we be loving people. And so I ask you, does this description of love characterize your life? I think if we're honest, I think we're, we're really not the best at being able to answer that question for ourselves. Love is, is inherently relational. Love gets played out in our relationships with one another. And so we need the help of one another to see how we are doing here. So I think just a good takeaway for all of us, a challenge to everyone here, would be to seek out two or three people in our church community, a couple of people who know you well, and to ask them, would you say that I am showing love in these ways? Do these verses, verses four through seven, generally describe how I am relating to you and others? Just think about it right now. Who, who are you going to ask? God wants to use us to help others, and we need others to help us here. I think at a minimum, you know, this passage is read at weddings. And I think at a minimum, these are certainly questions that husbands and wives need to be asking one another. I know for me personally, it's helpful when Donna and I are able to get away on a date night for me to ask her if she feels like I'm acting in love towards her in these ways and the kids. And husbands, just a quick way to get some, some brownie points here or some quick points, just, just so you know, even asking this question is a sign of love. <laughs> asking this question is an act of love. Um, so, so husbands and wives, let's commit to asking each other these questions. Let this be the topic of conversation in your car ride home or on your next date night. Um, but we all need to remember here, as I mentioned earlier, that this passage wasn't specifically written to or for our marriages, but it was written for the whole church community. So none of us are off the hook. So teenagers, young adults, young professionals, anywhere in between, what would your siblings or friends say? Would your classmates or coworkers say that you are loving in these ways? Would they say that these words, these verses, are a, char a good character a characterization of how you are living and relating with them? And just church, while there's always room for us to grow, right, I just want to pause and thank you and encourage you all because I think loving one another is such a strength. It is such a gift of our church, right? At least that's how I feel. I see time and time again, I hear stories and I see it being played out in all of our home groups, members embodying this others-focused love. So I just want to say thank you. Let's continue to grow and excel in this all the more. But I just want to highlight the sign of grace in your life. Well, in a minute, uh, we're going to see how God empowers and enables us to grow all the more in our love for one another. But before we do that, let's see Paul's third reason why our truest spirituality is found in the superiority of love. And the third reason that Paul gives us is that love is eternal. Here, Paul again, he returns to the Corinthians' fascination with the gifts 
as he gives them yet another reason why they should prize and pursue love more than any of the gifts. And his point is rather simple. After all of the gifts pass away, love will remain. Look with me at verse 8. Paul says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Here in this verse, Paul is telling the Corinthians, guess what? These gifts that you prize and treasure so much, these gifts that you look to to measure your spirituality, let me, in, let me, let, me let you in on a little secret. They're going to pass away. They're going to pass away. There is going to come a time in the future when these gifts will no longer be needed. But guess what? Love, this thing that I've been talking about, will always be needed because love never ends. Why do we want to prize and treasure love? Because love alone is eternal and the gifts are not. Before we look at a couple implications of the, the eternality of love for us, I just want to briefly address two questions that generally get raised out of this passage. Um, if you're familiar, these verses here in 1 Corinthians 13 are at the center of a debate about whether the, the sign or the more miraculous gifts continue to today or whether these gifts have ceased. And so I just want to briefly answer two questions for us before we look at a couple implications of, for our lives. First, I think many people have looked at these verses, especially verse 8 where it says that tongues will cease, to make an argument that, that whatever can be said about prophecy or knowledge, that this verse, this passage here is clear that the gift of tongues are no longer around for today because they ceased. The reasoning goes that since Paul says these gifts are going to cease, and people read this and they take it to mean that these gifts are going to, to cease on their own. But the other gifts, knowledge, the gift of prophecy, they're going to pass away at some point. So there, something's going to happen that causes prophecy and knowledge to pass away. But tongues, they're just going to cease on their end. Um, that's, that's how the reasoning goes. Um, so they look at that and they said, since tongues are going to gift, they say, well, tongues are just a temporary gift for the early church then. You know, they're, they're no longer needed for today. And while there are certainly some who, who argue for that and who, um, who would say that that's what it is, I think that that question really misses the, the force of Paul's argument here. I think looking to tongues, saying that the tongues are going to cease, I think it really misses the point of what Paul is getting at here, which is what he's trying to say is that all of the gifts at some point are going to cease at some point in the future, but there's not going to be this weeding out of the gifts where at some point this gift's not going to be needed, at some point this gift's not going to be needed, at some point something's going to happen, and these gifts aren't going to be needed anymore. But, the, but, the, but instead, in, in Paul's bigger point here, I think the, we can take, the takeaway for us is that all of the gifts are still in continuance until something happens that causes them to cease. Which leads us to the second question of when will these gifts cease? And we see the answer here in verses 9 and 10. Paul says, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Paul here is very clear that the gifts will pass away when the perfect comes. Now throughout the, the history of the church, there have been two primary um, interpretations of what this perfect means. 
Um, for some, they take it to mean the completion of the New Testament. And for others, they take it to mean when Christ returns. And while there are godly people on both sides of this debate here who hold both views that the gifts have ceased and some people who believe that the gifts are still in around, around today, um, I think that the reading of Christ's return, the perfect, when, the per, when the perfect comes being when Christ returns, is the better reading. And I think it just fits better with the argument that Paul is making here. He says that the gifts are for this age, but there's going to come a time in the age to come when Jesus returns, when these gifts are no longer going to be needed. We see Paul make this point all the way back in 1 Corinthians 1.7 when Paul is thanking God for the gifts um, that God has given to the Corinthians. And he writes this, he says, so he's thanking God and he says, he's thanking God that there, the Corinthians, they're not lacking in any gift as they wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. The argument here is that the Corinthians weren't lacking in any gift until Jesus returns, which is what this is a reference to, the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ when Jesus returns. And we see the same logic here in verse 12. In verse 12, Paul writes, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, that's when the perfect comes, we will see face to face. He continues, Now I know in part but then, when the perfect comes, when Jesus returns, I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. Seeing God face to face, knowing him fully, even as we are fully known, these are not things that happened when the Bible was completed. But these are things, these are, are glorious things that will only happen when, when Jesus returns. I mean, you could see how eager for this Paul was as he closes the book of 1 Corinthians, crying out, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly, because he can't wait for this day. Paul can't wait for this day when the perfect comes, when he will see Christ face to face and seeing him, he will become like him. So rather than seeing this passage as an argument for the gifts ceasing, this passage here is really an argument for the gifts continuing till today because God's given us these gifts for the here and now. Now, I'll admit, that was just a very high level and potentially confusing answer to some questions about the gifts. But if you have any further questions or want to dialogue further on that, see me, see any of the elders after the service. We certainly love, would love to talk to you more about those things and clarify our church's position. But now for the first two implications. I think first, the first takeaway for us is since the gifts are not going to pass away until Jesus returns, Church, let's be a body that earnestly desires the gifts for the building up of the body. And we're going to hear more about that next week because that's how Paul opens chapter 14. But secondly, in continuing with Paul's point in this entire chapter, as great and as needed as the gifts are, let's not let the gifts eclipse the main thing, which is love, right? Faith, hope, and love remain, but the greatest of these is love. Love should be the primary thing that we're after. Love should be the context for our use of the gifts. Love is the basis of our fellowship with one another. It's the motivation and driving factor for all that we do. And it's what the church needs more than anything else. As we think through the fact that love is going to exist forever. Most amazingly, this passage helps us to see that love is what we will experience for all eternity. 
as Jonathan Edwards says, he says, heaven is a world of love. Heaven is a place where we will forever grow in our experience and knowledge of God's love, never fully comprehending it, but always going deeper and deeper into it. So this is why Paul's calling us to prize and to pursue love, to find our truest spirituality in, this, in the superiority of love, because it alone is essential. It alone is others-focused, and it alone is eternal. But most importantly, I think what's at the heart, what, is that what this passage is really at, or the heart of this passage, is really an invitation for all of us to reflect on Jesus' love for us, seen most clearly in his life, death, and resurrection. Because while Jesus is never once mentioned or named in this chapter, this chapter is all about Jesus. Because it's only in Jesus that we see the imperfect embodiment of love. It's, oh, Jesus is the only one who perfectly loved us, as Paul describes in these verses. So much so, you could easily substitute Jesus' name wherever you see love in this, in this passage. And that would describe to us who Jesus is. And it's only through our awareness and through our experience of Jesus' love for us that we can be the type of people who prioritize love that Paul is calling us to be. Remember that we love because God first loved us. In fact, apart from our experience of God's love for us, we would never want to and we would never be able to love others. At our core, we would remain lovers of self but once our eyes are open to see the beauty, to, to behold the wonder of God's love for us seen in the cross, we are freed to respond in love for God and others because it is his love that compels us to live, not for ourselves, but for him. It's Christ's love poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that turns us upward in love for God and it turns us outward in love for one another. So you want to know, how do I grow in love? How do I become a more loving person? Paul's answer, marvel at God's love for you in Jesus. You want to become a more loving person. You want 1 Corinthians 13 to define and to describe your life, the ways that you are living with and relating to others. Paul says, look at Jesus. See his love displayed for you in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ where he bore the penalty for your rebellion and he invited you into this relationship of love with him where you are freed to live a life of love. You want to be a more loving person? Spend time reflecting on the cross and resurrection where you see Jesus' love for you. Be intentional to position yourself to be reminded of God's love for you throughout your week and each day. Just a few potentially helpful practices or ways to shape things. Um, first, I just think that uh, desiring to position ourselves to see God's love for us is such a great encouragement to be in the Word regularly, to, to have a regular prayer life where we can be reminded of God's love for us. We practice these spiritual disciplines of reading the Word, of praying, not to earn God's love, not to earn his, anything, but to be reminded ourselves of the love that we already have received in Him. 
and that we might grow deeper and deeper in our experience of it. That this might be more and more of a reality in our hearts. Just this last week, I spent some time just meditating on love does not insist on its own way. I had just been convicted. I was silly. It was the World Series game was on, and the kids wanted to watch something else. And I'm like, no, we're watching the World Series game. We're not watching something else. And I was just convicted of how I was insisting on my own way in that situation. Now, there might be an asterisk, an exception clause during the World Series. It's okay to insist on your own way. If you know where that is, let me know. But this, this week, as I spent time just pondering and reflecting how Jesus himself did not insist on his own way, rather the complete opposite. He gave up everything he was entitled to, where he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. For me, seeing Jesus' example was so helpful for my heart to give me reasons and encouragement and motivation to not insist on my own ways, but to pray and to ask the Holy Spirit for his help. As Paul says in Philippians 2, Jesus did the opposite of insisting on his own way. So just spend some time meditating. If you're looking at, where do I start? Go to 1 Corinthians 13, 4, and just spend time, phrase by phrase, meditating on God's love for you as displayed in those ways. But also let this passage shape your view of why you come to church each week. We gather together primarily as God's people to receive and respond to his love for us. This happens in the songs that we sing, in our creeds, in our confessions, in the word read and preached, and in our celebration of the Lord's Supper, which we're going to do in just a minute. So as the band wants to come forward, as the ushers prepare to serve the elements, before they do, I just want to take a moment and speak to those who might not have who might not be able to relate here, who might say, you know what, I'm not a Christian this morning. This morning I was dragged here by someone who loves me, or this morning I came because I'm curious, what in the world is this church thing all about? What in the world is this Christianity thing all about? If you're here and you have not experienced God's love for you, I would encourage you to look to the cross and to see God's love displayed for you. The Bible is clear that Jesus' death on the cross is the greatest display of God's love for his people. So look to that to see where Jesus took the penalty for your rebellion and to see Jesus inviting you into his life of love. For all of us members, all of us, those who have received God's love, those who have experienced God's love, as we prepare to take the elements, I would just encourage all of us, as we receive the bread, as we receive the cup, just to to marvel once again at God's love displayed for us in his body broken, in his blood shed for us. As you are walking forward to receive the elements, look around and celebrate at just this beautiful community of love that God has created, that we are all those who have experienced God's love. And God is inviting us to show and display our love to all those whom we are sharing the bread and the cup with. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your display of love towards us. Holy Spirit, I pray that in these moments, that in these moments as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, as we reflect on this great display and sign of your love for us, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move in our hearts, that you would would move us to joy, to overflowing joy as we marvel and reflect on your love for us. 
Holy Spirit, grant us conviction where we need to grow in love and let us do so out of a deep desire to follow Christ, to become more like him. The Holy Spirit, meet us in these moments, we pray. Amen.